So we're in uh, Luke 19, and I'm going to jump right in as these guys are still handing out Bibles. Let me start with a question. How many of you have ever been really, really angry? Can I see a show of hands? Show of hands, right? <clears throat> really? I'm talking cook an egg on your forehead kind of angry. <laughs> I remember years ago, um, my daughter Caitlin was getting ready to go to college in Seattle, and we were getting the RV ready to go. Uh, and uh, funny thing about RVs, they're like boats, two happiest days in a man's life, the day he gets it, the day he sells it, right? <laughs> I got rid of that thing, but at any rate, getting the RV ready, it's in front of my house, and I had borrowed from a friend of mine a car carrier because I was going to tow her car up to Seattle. Somebody stole it, right? We, we're, I mean, we literally are running back and forth from the house. I was gone maybe two and a half minutes, they pulled up next to my RV, and this is what makes it worse. They pulled up next to the RV, they put the trailer on their car, and then they bailed, totally trashed the back of my RV. The, the trailer just literally drove through the back and side of my RV as they pulled it around. Um, so yeah, I was a little upset, right, as you might imagine. Benjamin Franklin says, anger is never without a reason, but it's seldom with a good one. I think I had a good reason that night. I was pretty upset. Now, of all the things that we could get angry about, I think the top of the list is when someone messes with our kids, right? Someone messes with your kid. You can be the most tame person in the world, the most gentle person, the most, you know, peace-loving person. Somebody messes with your kids, you're like, all right, someone's going to the morgue and someone's going to jail. Like, it's going down, you know? And, uh, and so what we're going to see today, it'd be, it, it, it's interesting did you know Jesus got angry? Like we always think, you know, Jesus, the image, carrying the sheep, little peace sign, you know. Jesus gets angry. We see it in the New Testament. Today is one of those times. <clears throat> and what we're going to see, just as we as parents can identify, man, somebody messes with our kids, we get upset. That's kind of what's going on. That's why Jesus is angry. Let's pick it up where we left off. We're in Luke chapter 19. Uh, we'll pick it up in verse 45. It says, then he, speaking of Jesus, went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying to them, <clears throat> it is written, my house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him. And they were unable to do anything, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. Lots to see here in our text. Let me just kind of set the context first of all. We've been in the Gospel of Luke for about 17 months. And um, Luke chapters 1 and 2 uh, are dealing with events that lead, are leading up to the birth of Jesus. Then you get to chapter 3, and it's all about John the Baptist preparing the way for the introduction of Jesus as the Messiah and the start of his ministry. And then you get to chapter 4, and from chapter 4 all the way to the, the middle of this chapter, 19, um, the narrative covers three and a half years of Jesus' ministry um, here on the earth. But then what happens is right at verse 28 of chapter 19... Luke hits the brakes and slows way down. It's kind of like when you're driving on the freeway and you see a cop. You know, all of a sudden you hit the brakes, right? Everything, well, I do. But anyway, so you, everything, everything slows down. And, uh, and so this is what's going on. The last six chapters of Luke actually only cover eight days. 
they're focusing on the eight days, Jesus' final eight days leading up to his death, his burial, and his resurrection. So um, we actually started this section the week um, before Easter, Palm Sunday. Pastor Rod taught the message. It was in verses 28 through 44. And again, we're looking at eight days. So, so the Palm Sunday message is dealing with that. Palm Sunday, Jesus' triumphal entry right into Jerusalem. <clears throat> Here in our text today, the focus is on Monday, the very next day. It's a day known as the 11th day of Nisan. That's important. I'll come back to that. Um, but basically, it's four days before the traditional slaying of the Passover lamb. Now, Jesus, he's been on his way to Jerusalem since chapter 9. And uh, here now, he's entered the city, and he enters during the Feast of Passover. That's important. Let's review for a second. Passover, what is the Feast of Passover? You guys know that it, Passover is all about when the Jews were in slavery and in bondage in Egypt. And what happened was God went to Moses and he said, go to Pharaoh, take a message for me, tell him, let my people go. So, so Moses goes to Pharaoh, says, hey, God called, says he wants you to let his people go. And Pharaoh says no, and he says no repeatedly. And so God keeps sending all of these plagues to come upon uh, Egypt and afflict them. He wants them to, to relent, wants Pharaoh to relent, let the Israelites go from slavery and from bondage. Well, nothing doing. They're not having it. And so finally, God sends his final plague. He sends the angel of death. And he sends a word of warning to Pharaoh, basically through Moses, saying, look, let, let my people go, or the angel of death is going to come, and the firstborn son of, 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 of all your, your households is going to die. So, um, because he's a God of love, and he wants to pour out his wrath on, on those who, you know, are, are you know, not going to heed what he says. He offers a way for the Israelites to be spared from the angel of death. He basically says, okay, here's what you do. If, if, if you want to be spared from the angel of death, you have, to, you have to slaughter an innocent lamb, a pure, unblemished lamb. And then you have to take the blood from that lamb and you have to put it on the doorposts of your house. And then that way, when the angel of death comes, when he sees that your, your house is sealed with the blood of the lamb, that angel of death will then pass over your house. That's how it got its name, Passover. And all of this happened really to point us to Jesus Christ, right? To point us to how he would give his life as a ransom for many. Here's how it works. Bible tells us, Romans chapter 3, 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And <clears throat> as sinners, we, like the Jews in Egypt, we are in bondage and slavery to sin. And, and that's the truth. That's the get that we have. And God, because he's holy and because he's righteous, God has to judge sin, right? And that judgment, the Bible says, ultimately is death. Uh, and ultimately, this speaks of eternal death when God is going to pour out his wrath on an unrepentant world. But God, because he's also a loving and a merciful God who desires that none should perish, but that all should come to everlasting life, God has made a way so that we can escape uh, that his wrath. We can escape death. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but 
The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus is our Passover lamb. And by the way, that was John the Baptist when he first laid eyes on Jesus. I told you in Luke chapter 3, he sees Jesus. Um, And when John the Baptist first laid eyes on Jesus, the words out of his mouth, John's gospel records that he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. (coughs) So Jesus came to be our perfect, unblemished sacrifice for sin. And so all of this now is going down. It's Passover. It's all to point to the personal work of Christ. It's culminating in the city of Jerusalem. And now Jesus comes during the season of Passover and he ascends up to the temple, the temple that is built on the site where Abraham was, was went to sacrifice Isaac. Remember, God told Abraham to sacrifice Isaac and he went up there onto the site where the temple now stands. And the temple in this day stood And it was in that place where God then told him, hey, at the last minute, uh, you don't have to sacrifice your son because I have provided a sacrifice. I've provided a substitute for your son. Also, this picture of the work of Jesus Christ. And so it's in that place, right, where you've got the people that would uh, come to meet with God. That's the significance of what's going down here. Okay? This place that God established for people to meet with God and to remember God's provision for the forgiveness of our sins. And so they would gather as they, as they went up to the temple in various courts, various locations there at the temple. And what they would do is they would bring their sacrifices so that they, like the, the Jews in Egypt, they, they could have their sin. Um, that, you know, they're acknowledging that, that they should die because of their sin but they're also acknowledging that a substitute is going to be made, that the blood of the lamb would be shed, that it would satisfy the wrath of God, and their sins would be forgiven, their relationship with God would be reconciled. And again, it's all there to point to Jesus. And so this was a huge holiday. It was a massive event. And people would journey for days, they would journey for weeks, they, they would journey for months to go to Jerusalem for this Event And then as they drew near the temple and they were getting ready to ascend up the temple, they would draw near and they would begin with ritual washings and cleansings. And the whole purpose was to show that they had a need to be cleansed, washed and cleansed of their sin. And after they would wash and go through these ritual cleansings, they would put on a white robe. And that was to, to signify the, the righteousness that, that they could receive in Jesus or in the, their Messiah, that they, they could be forgiven, they could be made pure, and then they would assemble up to the temple, and as they went up, they would sing the songs of ascent uh, that I, I asked Zach to read uh, today, um, one of them being Psalm 130, and this just gets the whole vibe of what is going on in the heart. Here's what they would sing. From the depths of despair, O Lord, I call for your help. Hear my cry, O Lord. Pay attention to my prayer. Lord, if, you've, if you kept a record of our sins, who, O Lord, could ever survive? But you offer forgiveness that we might learn to fear you. I'm counting on the Lord. Yes, I'm counting on him. I put my hope in his word. I long for the Lord more than the centuries, long for the dawn. Yes, more than the centuries, long for the dawn. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord, there is unfailing love. His redemption overflows. He himself will redeem Israel 
from every kind of sin. So this is what the, <coughs> what the whole thing is about. They, they ascend up, this song of ascent, as it's Passover, as they're commemorating everything that God has done to wash and cleanse our sin and acknowledge their great need to be forgiven. And then when they would get to the temple, they would make their sacrifice just as the Jews in Egypt had made their sacrifice. And it's all supposed to be focused on God's love and on God's deliverance. And the priests were supposed to be there to to help the people and to pray for the people. But what Jesus encounters on this Passover is that the priests, instead of praying for the people, they're praying on the people. Now, I pointed out earlier that this was the 11th day of Nisan. And what would happen is for several days, beginning with the 10th day of Nisan, it was what was known as a time of inspection. And what would happen is they would inspect the lambs that were intended to be offered as a sacrifice, a sacrificial offering to the Lord. They would inspect them to make sure that they were in fact unblemished. Remember, this is a picture, and God had made particular, hey, it's got to be an unblemished lamb. Why? Because it's a picture of Jesus, right? And if it's not unblemished, then, then that, that ruins the picture, because Jesus, he gave his life as a ransom for many. He lived a perfect life. He was without sin, without blemish, without spot, and because he was the perfect sacrifice, <coughs> he could be what the Bible calls the propitiation for our sins. Right? He could be an acceptable substitute to give his life as a ransom for many. So what would happen during this time of inspection is that you would have uh, people that would make the pilgrimage and they're coming in this holy time to worship the Lord and, and the priest, rather than seeking to reconcile people to God, they're, they're more interested in running a racket. You know, they're, 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 they're into racketeering. So what would happen is you would come up. And so many people making the pilgrimage, and let's say that you made the pilgrimage and, and you've brought your sacrificial lamb, one that you've raised, one that you've tended, you've been very attentive to it, that it be unspotted, unblemished. So you would get up there then to, to the temple and you'd go and, hey, I want to sacrifice my lamb. Okay, we've got to inspect it, make sure it's unblemished. And you would have these used car salesmen that would look at it and, and they would say, oh, there's a blemish, can't use this lamb. But we just so happen to have one available for you. And, uh, you know, you can, you can get it over here. And, of course, greatly marked up prices. I mean, we're talking, you go to Dodger Stadium and order a hot dog and you got to take out a line of credit for it, kind of gouging people, you know. And, uh, and so they're like, this is, well, there you go. And then you would have others who would make the trek. Now, maybe they, they weren't able to bring a lamb for the sacrifice, but they're hoping once they get there that they can purchase a lamb for the sacrifice. And once again, you've got the, 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 the folks there all setting up to do shop, and uh, they just happen to have an unblemished lamb. Never mind the fact that it was the one three guys before they had said was, was blemished and we can't use this one. And so he bought one of their other ones and then they would quietly put that one around into their inventory, you know. And so you would come up and say, yeah, I want to get one. And again, they jack up the price and gouge the people. <coughs> Another thing they would do is if you went up and you said, hey, I want to buy a lamb, 
they'd say, all right, pay up. And then if you took out your currency, if it was foreign currency, they'd be, oh, wait, wait. We can't take foreign currency. That's, that's got an image of, uh, of a ruler that's blasphemous to God. But I'll tell you what we'll do for you. We will, we will exchange. We'll change that money. You know, like at the airport. You go into Europe. You want to get some euro. You give them your American cash. They give you some euro. They go, hey, we'll do that. But again, jacking up the price. So they're making money hand over fist, right? And it's a racket. And this is what Jesus comes to find, right? And worst of all, it's not just that they're doing this, all this shyster activity, but worst of all, it's where they're doing it because they have set up shop in the court of the Gentiles. Now, what's significant about that? Well, the court of the Gentiles could easily hold 100,000 people. And God had said through the prophet Isaiah that the Jews were supposed to be a light to the Gentiles. Here's what he said. I will make you a light to the Gentiles and you will bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. And so the court of the Gentiles was a place where those who weren't Jewish but who wanted to acknowledge their sin and worship the one true living God where they could come and do that. So they've set up shop and they're making merchandise of the people and and making a circus <clears throat> out of this, this area that God had set aside for, for the nations to be blessed and to, to come to know the Lord and really to be evangelized, right? And this is the heart of God. We saw it back in verse 10 of this same chapter, Luke 19. Jesus said, the Son of Man came to seek and to save those who are lost. So you imagine now that you're one of these people. You're, you're not a Jew by birth, but you want to worship the one true living God. You're on a pilgrimage to meet God and you're painfully aware of your sin, and you're desperate for God's, you know, redemption. And here you come to the house of God, and God's representatives are there, and they're trying to sell you a used car, right? And, and this, is, this is what their experience is. They're robbing people blind, and they're making a circus out of what's supposed to be a holy time of communing with God. And it's no wonder Jesus loses his lid, man, and he just, he rebukes them. Now, when Jesus rebukes them, he's quoting from Isaiah 56, verse 7, and Mark's gospel gives us a little bit more because we just get a little snippet of it here, what Jesus said. Mark's gospel, Mark eleven seventeen, talking about the same event, records that Jesus taught, saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, that's the key, but you've made it into a den of thieves. See, the point that Isaiah was making and that Jesus is emphasizing is that, hey, the temple courts, specifically the courts of the Gentiles, where you got this whole circus going on, this is supposed to be a place for all the nations to come and pray. This is supposed to be a place of evangelism. This is supposed to be a place where people from every nation, tongue, and tribe can come and find the Lord. But the circus that Jesus found makes that impossible. William Barclay says this of that experience. He says, In the uproar of buying and selling and bargaining and auctioneering, prayer was impossible. Those who sought God's presence were being debarred from it from the very people of God's house. This is, by the way, the second time that Jesus cleansed the temple. You may recall back in John chapter 2, Jesus showed up and money changers were there. He was also on a Passover, by the way. 
uh, he showed up. This was at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. This we read in Luke is at the end of Jesus' ministry. So he bookends his ministry cleansing the temple. So in John chapter 2, he gets there and he makes a whip and starts driving people out with a whip. You know, and no whip is used now here a, a few years later in Luke's gospel. No doubt because they go, oh, we remember this guy. Last time he brought a whip against us. Let's get out of here kind of thing. But Jesus is like, I'm not having it, right? And so, again, and he does it for the same reason, that the priests are thin it, in it thick, and th- thick as thieves with the merchants, and they're polluting God's glory. They're, they're polluting the reputation of God, and they're making merchandise of people in the very place that God established for them to know him and to worship him and to confess their need of cleansing. Really significant deal. And so this is toxic. And, uh, and so let me hit the, <coughs> I'm so sorry. <coughs> let me hit the pause button right here. Because we're, we're talking historically about what went down. We're talking about biblically why it went down. And, the, and, and so in context, in, in historical context, we go, okay, cool, I get it, I understand it. But what's that got to do with me, right? What's it got to do with you? Here's the deal. Let me remind you that if you are in Christ, you are a new creation, right? God, old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. You've had your sins forgiven. You, you've had your sins cleansed. But in Christ, you're the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are the temple now, right? So, so with that in mind, Paul said to the Corinthians, don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you, was given to you by God, that you do not belong to yourself. So just as these people were polluting the temple and preventing people from being able to encounter God, we have to take a walk with, am I polluting my, my temple, the temple of the Holy Spirit, of God who lives in me, and, and am I muddying the waters to where God would like them to come to this temple and to be able to, to encounter the true and living God? Can that be said about your life? Listen to what Paul said to the Philippians. He said, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it's God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and dis- disputing that you may become blameless and harmless children of God Without fault, here it is, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. We're supposed to shine as lights. Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. I just ask you the simple question, is that you? Are the courts of your life oriented to shine to the lost? Or when people encounter you, Does your life interfere and distract them from the Lord? Because Jesus here, his anger shows us how precious these people are to him. Jesus said in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 17, we were there a few weeks ago. It's impossible that no offenses should come, but woe to him through whom they do come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. And that word offend, it's scandal on. It's the trigger on a trap. You know, as a kid, I used to set up a laundry basket, put a trigger on it with a string tied to it, and I put a can of tuna in there, and I would catch the neighbor's cat, you know? <clears throat> and, and I thought it was hilarious. The cat didn't think it was so funny. But anyway, <laughs> that's it, the cat's problem. Anyway, um, but, <laughs> but that trigger, right? And sometimes we can be that trigger of a trap for people that God would say, hey, look, you're the temple of the Holy Spirit. 
Now, I would, I would really love for people to see Jesus in you. I'd really love for you not to be a hindrance to people coming to the Lord. Something for us to take a walk with. Well, there's two important observations I want to I wanna, uh, conclude with here. We, we're in verses 47 and 48. Two things I want you to see. Tells us in verse 47, after Jesus cleanses the temple, it says there <coughs> that he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him and were unable to do anything, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. Okay, a couple things to see here. Um, number one, I, want, I guess I'll, I'll just focus on uh, the word of God, okay? First, first thing I want you to see is that Jesus was, was very much prioritizing the teaching of the word of God. We think about Jesus, and there's some people, when they think about Jesus, they think, oh, he fed the poor, and, and, and he healed people, and he was all merciful and, and loving and providing for, for, for people, and so that's who we should be as Christians. And yes, Jesus did all those things, and yes, we should, but listen, that was not Jesus' priority. I will tell you very clearly, that was not Jesus' priority. His priority was to teach the word of God. Right? And that's what he did. Verse 47 says he was teaching daily. This was the Lord's priority. It's so critically important that we teach the word on a regular basis. Here's why. Because the way you're wired, the way I'm wired, naturally speaking, we don't really know who the Lord is and what he requires of us. In the natural You can't know. If you let your feelings and your emotions dictate uh, what you think God should be, then that would make God made in your image, right? And so that's that's a big danger. Now, we live in a day and an age when people want to make a God in their image. I just received an email, and I won't go into the details, but I just received an email um, yesterday. And this person was criticizing me, telling me I should reconsider the way that I preach because um, everybody knows that, uh, that, that Jesus taught in metaphors. It's all, the Bible's metaphorical. It's not literal. And basically saying, you, sh- you shouldn't teach the Bible as literal truth. Um, you, should, you should teach it the way that it, that it originally was. And, uh, and I got a couple reactions to that. One of my reactions is to go, huh, you know, that's kind of what's wrong with America. Like, I've been a pastor for 25 years. I actually teach homiletics at Bible College, which is the science and art of biblical preaching. And I have somebody telling me an email that, that oh, no, this is the way the Bible's supposed to be taught. It's like, did you Google that? Like, you know. Um, <laughs> and, and so that just irritates me. That's just me, Aaron, my dirty laundry, my frustrations. I just, like, <laughs> keep your email. Um, but, but, <laughs> but, the, but the other part of it is, my, really, my heart breaks because this is the enemy deceiving people, doing what he does. And people are deceived. You know, he takes people, you know, captive to do his will because, they, because he lies to them and he deceives them. <coughs> and what a train wreck it is to be believing that the word of God isn't, isn't the literal truth. I mean, there's some dangers there. Jesus taught about a literal hell. You know, he taught, he taught about some literal issues that we got to take a to look at and take a walk with. Sure, every once in a while, he taught in metaphor, but he makes it abundantly clear. But it's a literal truth, and we, we have to be aware of that. So 
So the fact of the matter is Jesus is teaching and that's a priority and that's why we make it a priority. So important that we got to get our compasses set to the true north, okay? And I say this all the time and I'll beat it like a drum that we, we can't, you can't just go, the Bible says there's a way it seems right to a man but its end is the way of death. We have to be careful just, just to focus so clearly, so intently on that. Now, here's the second observation and it's kind of, it, it's related to that. I want you to notice um, how the people receive and respond to biblical rebuke, okay? Because, because on the one hand, Jesus is making teaching a high priority. The implication, we got to make teaching a high priority. It means we, we, we can't take our opinion of the way things should be. We have to be willing to submit them and subject them and test them by the word of God. And if one of them's off... Well, we know which one's off and which needs to be corrected. It's us who needs to be corrected to the true north of God's word. So with that in mind, you look here, and what do you see? You see that Jesus comes to the temple, and he corrects, and he's rebuking them. And how's he doing it? He says, look, I'm going to correct you, and let me me share chapter and verse with you where you're off. Because this is what Isaiah the prophet says. And he's saying that by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, speaking, it's God speaking through him, and Jesus is saying, you know, that's the word of God, okay? And, and so, so Jesus is using chapter and verse to tell them, what you're doing is wrong, and here's why what you're doing is wrong. And notice how they respond. Verse 47, the chief priests, the scribes, the leaders, the people, they sought to destroy him. They sought to destroy him. Let me ask you a question. How do you receive and respond correction to, to correction from God's word? Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. This, this will be fruitful. It's to the right. Go to, go, go to 1 Corinthians 5. And I am totally not following my notes. All you the tech people, they're going crazy because uh, like, just, I've just abandoned my notes at this point. But... <laughs> Do the best you can. <laughs> so 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So what's going down, you guys know, we talked about it last week, churches, right, are messy. They're filled with messy people, there's messy problems, and we read it throughout the New Testament. One of the reasons, by the way, we know the Bible's true, because it paints all of its characters, warts and all, like doesn't make everybody perfect. And so we see that churches sometimes have problems. The church in Corinth had some problems. And so, so Paul writes this letter, this, this first epistle, we call them epistles, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, um, he writes them to, to, to correct some issues. <coughs> so here in chapter 5, Paul's correcting them, and uh, he says it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. Now, that word sexual immorality, it's the word pornea, and it's kind of a junk drawer term, which just refers to all forms of of sexual immorality. Anything other than you being involved in a sexual relationship in a marriage union, husband and wife, would fit in this junk drawer. Why? Because people are sneaky. And if the Bible doesn't specific mention, specifically mention their sin, then they'll try and insist it's okay. You know, oh, Jesus never specifically said anything against homosexuality. Well, yeah, he didn't specifically say anything against child molestation either. Right? And, and so, so this is just that junk drawer term. But Paul's going to get more specific. It's reported that there's sexual immorality among you 
and such sexual immorality that as it is not even named among the Gentiles. In other words, he's saying, look, what you're doing is so nasty, even the people that don't know God say it's nasty. That's when you know you're in trouble, okay? He says that a man has his father's wife. Is this his mom? Is this his stepmom? I don't know. It's Kentucky weird is what it is. And so <laughs> this is... <laughs> now, I don't know. If you're from Kentucky, that's, that's just a saying, okay? But you might want to see. If your family tree goes straight up and down, you got some problems. So anyway, um, <clears throat> but he says, this man has his father's wife. And he says, and you're puffed up about it, right? He says, you're puffed up and you have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. You're puffed up about it. This word, the original word, for puffed up, um, it, we get the word bellows from this word, like, you know, when you, you stoke a fire. And so puffed up. He's saying, look, you, you guys as a church, you know, you all know this is going down and, and you're all puffed up with pride about it, you know? And, and what, what are they proud about? I, yeah, oh, look how tolerant we are. Look how inclusive we are. And look how loving we are, Right? And, and so they, they got parades, they got bumper stickers, they got the whole nine yard. We're all puffed up about, hey, this is, you know, hey, we're, God's a God of love and who are we to judge and all this stuff. And he says, you should be mourning, not be all proud about how tolerant you are. And he says, and basically, <clears throat> he who has done this thing, might, you sh- you, you sh- he should be taken away from you. That's what he's saying. He says, for I indeed, verse 3, as... Uh, absent in the body, but present in the spirit, I've already judged as though I were present him who has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you're gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh that his (coughs) spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. He says, your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you truly are unleavened for indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread uh, bread of sincerity and truth, all right? Uh, and, um, and basically what's going down here is that um, Paul is saying this guy is in sin and, um, and he's going to be toxic to your, to your Christian community and you got to kick him out and you got to turn him over to Satan. And you're like, whoa, that sounds harsh. Um, yeah, it's, it's pretty serious. Now, Paul goes on to clarify, and, I, and I, very quickly before I expand on this, I want to make sure that I clarify with Paul here who he's talking to, okay? Verse 9, he says, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people, yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral and goes on through the list of stuff. He says, verse 12, for what have I to do with judging those who are outside? 
Do you not judge those who are inside, but those who are outside, God judges, therefore put away from yourselves the evil person. What's Paul saying? He's saying, look, I'm not talking about unbelievers. I'm not talking about (coughs) somebody comes to your church, they don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, and they're living in sin. You don't bar them at the door and go, oh, sinner, you're not welcome here. No, you're welcome here. Come, hear the gospel. The hope is that you'll receive Christ as Lord and Savior. But (coughs) if you have received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you call yourself a Christian and a member of the family of God, and then you're acting like this, then we're going to say, no, that's not going to happen here because you have to be held accountable. You say that you're a believer, and so if you're going to act like a non-believer, then we're going to send you out of the church until you go, go run with the devil. Let him have his way with you. You're good. We're going to turn you over to Satan for the destruction of your flesh. Not to destroy you. It's to destroy your flesh. It's like the prodigal son. What happened? Prodigal son got a taste of the pig pen and started longing for his father's house and came back in repentance. That's the idea, okay? And, and what happens is we live in a day and age where people, you, you, you approach them and you call them, they're, you know, we're in community, we're in Christian community, they're a brother or sister in Christ. And what will happen is you will go to them and say, dude, I need to call you on your sin. Right? And all of this is in accordance, and I shared the verses last week with you, I put it on the screen for you again, Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. It says this, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, <coughs> but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. So really quickly, consider one another. It's fix your eyes attentively on one another. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to watch how you live. You're going to watch how I live, right? And we, for what purpose? In order, he says, to stir up love and good works. Okay, so, hey, you're doing this, and I need to tell you, you need to not do this. So in this instance, if Paul wrote this and go, look, this guy is acting like this, and it's not consistent with the, Christ, with, with the relationship with Christ, and you've got him in fellowship, you need to kick him out. And if the leaders were to go to this guy and go, look, we talked to Paul, and uh, we've we got to kick you out because of the way you're acting. And if he, if he at that moment said, oh, my gosh, you're absolutely right. I am, I, I've sinned. You know, have mercy on me. Guys, I'm so sorry. I'm repentant. Then what would happen? They go, okay, well, we're not going to kick you out. Now we're going to draw you closer. We're going to nurture you. We're going to care for you. We're going to encourage you. We're going to exhort you. See, that's the way it's supposed to work. So, so if, if we're considering one another in this kind of loving community, and then we go to one another, that's the goal. That's the hope. And then Paul says that, or the writer of Hebrews says this, um, in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the matter of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. See, because what happens so often is when you go to somebody and you say, brother, I got to call you on your sin. You're a brother in Christ. Here's what you're doing. And, and true love is me telling you what's going on. And they go, who are you? Who are you to tell me what to do? You know what? I'm out of here. I'm leaving this church. I was looking for a church when I found this church. And I'm out, right? And that can happen. And that's why the writer of Hebrews says, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. No, we have to put ourselves in that kind of community where there's love and encouragement and there's accountability and exhortation, right? And sometimes discipline. This is how it's supposed to work. Here's the problem, though. We live in a day and age when... The, the only Bible verse everybody seems to know is don't judge. 
right? And you go to somebody, they go, hey, man, the Bible says you're not supposed to judge, right? <clears throat> and, uh, and you go, you know what? Right, Jesus did talk about not judging. Uh, let me put the, screen, the scripture on the screen for you. Matthew 7, 1 through 5. <clears throat> Jesus said, judge not that you not be judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the same measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye? Hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying that if you're a kind of person who basically says to his friend, hey, you know what? Last night after I got drunk and finished beating my wife, uh, I started talking to a mutual friend of ours and we both agreed you're a bad husband, right? That's the kind of attitude that Jesus is talking about. So what he's saying is, no, live in Christian community where we judge ourselves first and then in the the context of relationship, we're, we're exhorting one another as well. You see how it's supposed to work? That's Christian community. It's not that you're perfect. It's not that you're without sin. If if the only person that could exercise confrontation and and exhortation to the body of Christ was somebody who was sinless, then none of us could could function as the church is is dictated to function in the New Testament. So what it means is that I'm committed to a relationship with the Lord, growing, and, and seeking the Lord. You're committed to a relationship with the Lord, growing and seeking the Lord. And mutually together, we're going we're gonna to spur each other on towards love and good deeds. And sometimes that includes words of correction. And where does the word of correction come? It comes from God's word. That's our true north. That's what we compare it to. So let me wrap this all up right now and just say this. Um, we desperately need to take some lessons from, this, from these brief verses in this account on this Monday, the day after Passover, lesson that Jesus gives us. Number one, you need to ask yourself, of course, I'm going to give you three questions, by the way, and I'd like you to write them down and take a walk with them this week. Maybe you can discuss them in your community groups. Question number one, are there any tables that Jesus needs to overturn in your life? Any hindrances in your life, any things that are going to be a stumbling block for non-believers, whatever it is, Is there anything in your life, any table, metaphorically speaking, that the Lord needs to turn over in your life? Number two, second question. How do you receive and respond to God's word? How do you receive and respond to God's word? And a related question, number three. How do you receive and respond to godly rebuke? Because we see these religious leaders, their reaction is, we're going to destroy you. Right? And really, what's happening? Satan wants to destroy them. So rather than receive the word of God, rather than receive rebuke, their reaction is, we're going to kill the messenger. We need to take a walk with this as Christians, guys.